Arizona's economy is still on the way up, but the unemployment rate hasn't moved much and per capita income isn't a shining light. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll check in with Jim Rounds to find out what's going right with the state's fiscal position and what still needs improvement, and how much could Arizona be affected by some tepid numbers at the national level. Plus, a couple of members of the legendary rock band Led Zeppelin have found themselves in court recently, testifying in a case accusing them of ripping off an earlier song and writing their signature, Stairway to Heaven. I'll check in with local music expert Adam Roberts about what sets songs apart and how often they sound alike. Also, novelist James Salas, best known for Drive, which was made into a movie starring Ryan Gosling, has written a new book called Will Not. We'll talk about how important the setting is and Salas' creative process. And the NBA draft is tomorrow, and the Phoenix Suns have the chance to completely reinvent their team. Will they do it? Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, how will the presidential race affect Arizona's legislative elections? Also, two members of Led Zeppelin find themselves in court in a case accusing them of ripping off an earlier song and writing their signature Stairway to Heaven. I'll check in with local music expert Adam Roberts. Also, we'll talk with novelist James Salas, best known for Drive. We start today's program with a look at Arizona's economy. What is its current condition? How much could the tepid national economy affect the state? And with me to talk about that is economist Jim Rounds, who's president of Rounds Consulting. Jim, welcome back. How you doing, Steve? Good. Let's talk about the job market to begin with, sure. because it seems like it's it seems a little slow. And I'm wondering what you're seeing as far as certain industries you're positive about. Uh, are we just sort of following a national pattern at this point? Yeah. So we got two stories. One is at the U.S. level. Uh, I think the U.S. economy is starting to slow a bit. The the recent numbers were uh, very weak. So we saw less than forty thousand jobs created. Uh, this last month. And just to give some perspective, normally I'd want to see about 200,000 as a threshold for what would be considered good. So that was terrible. There, there was about 35,000 had to do with the strike, but that still puts us in weak territory. Now, the Fed was talking about how their goal was 80,000 because they were trying to build up the opportunity to raise rates, and that's just not going to happen. So the U.S. numbers are weak. The Arizona numbers are starting to pick up. So we're starting to see state numbers in excess of 3%. Greater Phoenix start between 35 and 4 and even Tucson's picking up some. And we talked about some of the problems in that area in the past. So there's even some optimism there. So considering how much Arizona, and most of the rest of the country, of course, as well, was hammered during the Great Recession because of international slowdown and national slowdown as well, no one, fortunately, is predicting anything like that coming up anytime soon. But how much is Arizona, maybe even more so than other states, affected by what goes on nationally? Well, th- this last time around, we-, we were more exposed. And it was a very unique downturn. We're not going to see one like that again. And we had a very slow recovery. And so we're just getting back to normal. We didn't go past normal and into excess territory. That's where you have really bad downturns. So if we're just getting back to normal, when the U.S. economy slows we're going to be nicked, but it's going to look like 2001, which was very mild. We lost very few jobs rather than 2008. So Arizona's going to be picking up speed a little bit. The U.S. economy is slowing a little bit. Next couple of years, we're probably okay. But we, if the U.S. goes into a recession, we're going to have our problems too. The D.C. administration has not been shy about pointing out when certain companies decide they're going to move some jobs here, maybe a few hundred, maybe moving an international headquartered company, moving their national headquarters to, to the Valley. What do you make of stuff like that? Do you think this is a positive sign that we've got an administration that likes to talk these things up? Are you seeing real numbers that indicate to you we're making a larger impact than average? Yeah, well, well, the basic numbers have more to do with 
just the growth in the economy. And then you see some marginal impacts that have to do with business recruitment. But it takes a long time. You have to recruit a lot of businesses to start imp impacting the numbers that I would often show. Mm -hmm. So if it's going to take several years, I still think we have to have small business development policies. We have to have growing from within. There's a lot of little things we need to do. And the things I like the best are the things that don't cost a lot. Not spending $30 million on a business recruitment plan like you might have seen in Texas in the past, but better marketing of the state, which costs very little. Doing better research than we've done in the past to try to you know, move our tax policy or economic development programs at the margin, and over three or four years, you'll have a bigger impact. That's the stuff that I think matters long term. How competitive do you think Arizona is when it comes to, let me throw out some states like New Mexico and Utah or Colorado, and then some of the bigger boys like California and Texas? Um, there's almost a, a completely different story with some of them. You know, California has its own challenges. It's still growing jobs. If you want to be in the ultra high tech industries and you have to feed off the graduates from Stanford and some of the other areas, you are probably going to have your business there, but it's not the same as it was years ago. Now you can have these companies locate in places like Arizona, preferably, but then even some in New Mexico and Colorado mm -hmm. and Utah. And we're seeing really good growth. New Mexico is the outlier for our competitor states. They're still dragging in terms of economic growth, but Utah and Colorado are doing well. And all of these states are top 10 in terms of job growth. We're just not seeing the really high value added, high wage jobs just yet. I think that we might see a little bit of that before the economy slows again within the next couple of years, but um, we will eventually. Longer term, I still think that we'll be adding the high wage jobs, but those are the ones that we have to work at. Those are the ones that don't just come here. Well, and what are some industries, Jim, that you are optimistic about in the sense that optimistic that if we do the right things in this state, it'll work out. You've been really strong about spending more on tourism, for example, but even we talked about the Great Recession, we were hit so much, of course, this has been ad nauseum talked about, so much reliance on, on construction and, and, frankly, new bodies coming here. What are some industries that you have some hopes for? Well, I, so I'm hopeful for some and different for different reasons. I'm hopeful for construction because at some point we're going to get back to normal conditions. So it might be 2020, 2021 or so before we get back to true normal in that industry. But that means we're going to have really high rates of growth because we fell so far. Basic math is going to dictate we're going to have to grow by 7 or 8% at some point just to get back to where we were before. So you're going to see strong rates of growth, but you got to look at levels. Really big on tech as it relates to healthcare industries. So I like what I'm seeing, um, some of the planning going on in Scottsdale. I like the high-tech stuff that I'm seeing in downtown Phoenix. I, I like the stuff that I'm seeing in Tempe. Um, a, a lot of the cities have really embraced these high-value-added um, job recruitment policies, but also some of the growing from within, working on infrastructure, things like that. You have to do everything well. You can't just be good at one thing. And if we were considering it in sports, it would be like having a really good forward and the rest of the team in basketball was just terrible, or having real, one slugger in baseball and everybody else was terrible. You have a balanced team, you win that World Series, or you win the NBA championship, which you know we struggled with here a little bit, but that's what it's got to be in economic development. We have to have balance on all these things that matter. Now, when you started your own company, you settled in Tempe, and Tempe has been uh, real positive when it comes to public transit. Phoenix has tried that as well. Mesa, of course, has jumped on the light rail bandwagon, got in early on that. How important is transportation when we think about this has been such a car culture kind of place? Other big cities get a lot of credit for public transit. Is that just sort of a natural part of being in a big city, or does that actually help drive the economy too? I, I personally like having the light rail right next to my business, but there still are debates over cost effectiveness of the broader program. I think both sides have brought good arguments forward, but we, ha we have this part of the infrastructure. I think what we really have to be focused on is a lot of our statewide 
um, highway connections. So you've been hearing about I-11 and other things like that. That's part of the discussion. The one area that I think we're deficient at is that some of the communities haven't taken advantage of this expansion to improve their infra infrastructure to tie into some of the state planning that, we, that we've been working on and seeing at the Capitol. There are some communities that are going to be deficient in terms of their roadways, and if they can't connect in properly, then the new businesses are going to go right down the road a few miles and locate there. So a lot of this is also local. Jim, final question for you. I'm, I'm sort of looking at the end of this year. We can always look at the end of the fiscal year as well. Um, what's the trajectory for the Valley's economy and Arizona's economy? Are there factors that, even if you're optimistic, might make you take a second glance at particular numbers? Let's say not at the end of summer, but let's look at the end of December, for example. Okay. So the, the primary risk is if the U.S. goes into a downturn. Um, survey among a bunch of economists have been coming in. In the next year, they think that there's about a 25% chance of a downturn. One economic model that is pretty good showed about a 33% chance in the next 12 months. But keep in mind, these things never go to 100. You never get to 95, and then you have a downturn. Once you get to around 50, you usually end up being in a downturn area. But I think we're good for a couple of years. So we're okay there. We got to watch China. We got to watch stock market bubbles. So a lot of the U.S. stuff um, in Arizona, I think a lot of it has to do with um, we're going to continue to grow for some perspective. The state is going to grow revenue. Base revenue is about 4%. Back in the day when I was down at the Capitol, we regularly saw 7%. So this is a different time. The next expansion could be a little better. So regardless, you have to look at it in terms of context. All the numbers are better for Arizona, not as good as it was before, but I'm still seeing growth in most categories for at least the next year. Economist Jim Rounds, he's the president of Rounds Consulting. Jim, thank you as always. Yeah, it was good to see you. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. A lot of attention is being paid to Donald Trump and his potential impact on Republican Party hopes to reclaim the White House. But skepticism about his chances to achieve that is extending elsewhere on the ballot. Could Trump hurt the GOP in congressional races? Could that also go down ballot as far as the legislature? And is this the chance Arizona Democrats have been hoping for to win a majority in the state Senate? Or is it simply too steep a hill to climb? Hank Stevenson, along with Ben Giles, wrote about the possibility of a legislative shift in the Arizona Capital Times. And Hank joins me now in studio. Hank, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Steve. So what is the plan, first of all, for, for Democrats? And let's look for, I know you, you tend to cover the House, but having written this piece as well, let's focus on the Senate because the numbers are a little bit closer. What's the strategy there? Yeah, I think, you know, there's no doubt that presidential races drive turnout. So I, I think that, the, you know, the politicos are right in saying that whatever the impact may be, it, it, the presidential race will really move people to the polls, get people voting. Um, that's what people are looking at, not these legislative races. And when they go out to vote, you know, if they're voting for a Republican, frequently they'll vote all the way down the, the ballot for a Republican or same for Democrats. 
Um, so I think that they're, they're right in saying that there could be a huge impact on this election based on, you know, the presidential candidates and this, the Democrats uh, specifically in the Senate are looking at the possibility of taking even a majority of the Senate, which is something they've claimed every year for, you know, many, many years. Uh, and it's never come to fruition before. But, you know, they're, they're really revamping their efforts. They're getting their ground game together for a couple of key districts saying we could have a majority 16 members in the Senate. Um, may or may not be likely, but I think that, you know, they do have some very competitive races this year where at least they have good chances of picking up one, two seats in the Senate. Well, uh, one that you wrote extensively about in the piece, and this, these are the two folks you've covered extensively in the House, Eric Meyer and Kate Brophy McGee, who have been seatmates, and they have one of the rare districts in Arizona where there's a Republican and a Democrat representing the same district. Now they're going for what has been Adam Driggs' seat. How competitive do you think that race is going to be? That is the marquee legislative race this year, I think. That will be hugely competitive. It's always a very expensive race in that district. A lot of money is dumped into there. This year will be um, no different, um, you know, a lot more expensive than the Senate races over there have been where uh, Adam Driggs has just kind of coasted to re-election. He hasn't had to put a whole lot of effort into it. Uh, Eric Meyer was termed out of the House. He served eight years there, so he was kind of forced to move on. He mm-hmm. challenged uh, Adam Driggs um, to the Senate. Uh, the Republican Party leadership said, uh, look, we, we can't afford to lose this seat. Adam Driggs, maybe it's time for you to uh, do something else. And Kate Brophy McGee, the, the, house, the other House member from that district, um, stepped up. I think the Republican Party urged her to. Um, she's a very hard campaigner, a very good fundraiser, solid candidate, very moderate um, Republican, which is what that district looks for a lot of times. Uh, so that will be a heck of a race. That's really the one to watch. That's kind of a Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale area, um, a little bit of Paradise Valley. Um, you know, a lot of very uh, intelligent politicos live there, a lot of former lawmakers, judges. You know, it's kind of a, a very hot political district. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, whose record uh, pulls them to victory because they, they frequently have teamed up, Brophy McGee and Meyer. Um, Worked on a lot of similar issues together, Uh, kids care this year, Medicaid expansion in the past. But there's a lot of differences between the two, I mean, besides just the party labels. When we talk about a lot of money for a legislative race, give our listeners an idea of how much, because we're hearing, of course, tens of millions of dollars, even into the hundreds of millions of dollars at the national level. Legislative race, how much How much is a lot? A, a lot would be 200000 I think that would be a, a whole lot of money. Generally, I think those races break 100000 you know, per candidate. Um, but 200000 would be pretty astounding. And I think, you know, we could get close to that this year um, on each side, especially with you counting the dark money groups, the, the outside uh, political packs, um, spending money in those races. Besides just the candidates, it really skyrockets from there. This could be a half million dollar race for, you know, one seat in the legislature that pays $24,000 a year. So this seems obvious, I I guess, Hank, but we've been so used to Republicans dominating the legislature. And even there were super majorities not that long ago. You've got a Republican governor as well. How big a difference politically could this make in the state if the Democrats were even able to get 15-15 in the Senate? Yeah, even a split would be a huge victory for the Democrats. I mean, that would allow them the possibility of, you know, by themselves, not having to break off a Republican, being able to stop just about anything um, from going through the chamber, which would uh, drastically change the dynamics at the Capitol. Right now, uh, you know, as long as all the Republicans or near all the Republicans are in support of something, it flies through no problem. Um, Democrats have zero, almost no power, let's say, maybe be a little bit more than zero, but not much. Um, and, and this would give them significant uh, capital at the Capitol. You've covered the House extensively. Um, 
this speaker is outgoing, um, and there there could be a change, a dramatic change in that body potentially. No one would predict Democrats will take that body. But what sort of a difference could it make to have a new speaker there and a new speaker with, let's say, closer to a split? Let's say Republicans still have a seven or eight seat advantage, but not as dramatic as it is now. Uh, you know, the speakership race, those are those are kind of tough to call before the primary election because there will be, you know, no matter what, a whole lot of new members, new Republicans coming in. They get to cast their votes for speaker. Uh, you've got three candidates running for it right now. Uh, maybe four are still in it. Seems like it's kind of narrowed down to three. Um, but I think either way, the, 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 the House will be run very differently. This was kind of a, a, a strange two years um, under Speaker Gowan. Uh, you know, from the very get-go, he, he caught heat from his caucus for uh, planning to spend $2 million to revamp the House, including putting a gym in there. You know, there were some there were some troubled waters over in the House. And I think that the members of the House are really looking um, to not go down that path again. I think that uh, the, the farthest you can be from the current speaker is probably an advantage for those candidates right now. Um, it will still be a Republican House. Uh, there's no question about that. Even the Democrats, you know, kind of tacitly admit, yeah, we're not going to take the House, but we might uh, cut uh, cut down on the Republican advantage there by two seats probably is their best case scenario. Um, they've got a handful of districts that they're looking at. There's a couple of places down in southern Arizona, specifically Legislative District 2, which kind of runs from Nogales to the, the bottom of Tucson, where there's a Republican occupying what should be a Democratic seat. Um, if you look at the numbers, it's very um, amazing that this Republican was able to, to win this seat two years ago. And so Democrats are looking at that and saying, geez, we should have spent some more money in that race last year. We could have we could have had this seat for the last two years, and they are not going to make that mistake again. I think that's one of their main pickup uh, opportunities is that legislative district, too. They've got a couple of other seats that they want to pick up. Um, really, they've got a Holt Meyer seat in the House. That's a, that's a, a key um, district for them. They want to at least have you know, one member, uh, they want to keep it split as it has been. The House gets two members per district, and right now it's one and one. And Democrats losing that would be uh, huge for them. So they, they don't want to lose that. They've only got one candidate running, so they're not trying to take over the district. They just want to keep the same. And that's that's the case in a lot of places. And because of that one candidate, there's that strategy, which I guess has been used before with, with Meyer and Brophy McGee, this idea of what, cast a vote for a Democrat and then either don't cast another vote? Or how does that work? So it's called a single-shot strategy. Basically, uh, voters in, in every district in their House races get to pick two representatives. So there's two representatives from the House, one from the Senate. Um, and, you know, you would think that the Democrats would want to put up two candidates where they're at a disadvantage just in case. But really, in a lot of a lot of ways, it makes more sense for them to just put up one candidate. And then the candidate goes door to door and says, you know, I'm a Democrat. Uh, I see that you're an independent. I would you know, ask that you cast one vote for me and then one vote for your favorite Republican. And they can kind of consolidate all the votes um, uh, for Democrats just in that one candidate. And it gives them a better chance of of actually winning. So, you know, if, if Eric Meyer knocks on your door in Central Phoenix and kind of explains this strategy, he might do a better job than I do because he's been doing it for eight years, um, kind of explaining how how to kind of beat the odds in an overwhelmingly or, you know, a district where Republicans have a sizable advantage. Hank Stevenson co-wrote a very interesting piece in the Arizona Capital Times with Ben Giles about attention being paid to the Arizona legislative races and whether presidential election and Donald Trump, whatnot, could affect that. Hank, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Steve. And still to come on here and now, we'll look at the lawsuit that might affect Led Zeppelin. And then later this hour, 
the Phoenix Suns and the NBA Draft. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Maricopa County Summer Reading Program, encouraging everyone to read 20 minutes a day, earn prizes, and attend events at 62 libraries countywide. Now through August 1st, maricopacountyreads.org. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. We're at 91.5 FM, streaming online at kjzz.org, and you can also download the KJZZ mobile app. Well, the freeways around the valley mostly clear at this hour. Out west of the valley, however, westbound on I-10, a collision blocking the shoulder at Jackrabbit Trail. Around the state right now, partly cloudy, 100 degrees in Tucson. It's 101 in Yuma, 103 in Casa Grande, 91 right now in Prescott, and under sunny skies, 82 degrees in Flagstaff. Did you know you can turn your car, truck, or boat into something you really want? When you donate your vehicle, you'll make it possible for KJZZ's local reporters to cover everything that's important to you and your community. Donating your car, truck, or boat is easy at cars.kjzz.org. Mostly sunny right now in Phoenix, 101 degrees at 1126. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. In a courtroom in Los Angeles, a U.S. district judge has been hearing testimony on whether Jimmy Page and Robert Plant of the legendary rock band Led Zeppelin borrowed or stole a musical phrase as part of creating their signature song, Stairway to Heaven. The estate of Randy Wolf, founder of the band Spirit, claims that Page and Plant incorporated a unique musical phrase from 1968's Taurus in the 1971 Stairway to Heaven's introduction. Was there copyright infringement? Were Page and Plant influenced by Taurus? Did Stairway use a chord sequence that's been used for centuries? With me to talk about that is musician and Glendale Community College instructor Adam Roberts, who teaches a course in rock history. Adam, how often do songs sound similar? Can a songwriter, can an artist accidentally copy a song that came before simply because maybe that's where the creative inspiration developed? Well, I'd say it's almost impossible to write a song especially these days, that doesn't have some element from some other song. We have uh, in American music and, of course, uh, British music that's being heavily influenced by American music, it's all coming from the blues. We have this longstanding musical tradition that dates back you know, into the 1800s of uh, blues chord progressions and blues feeling and melodies, and it's so pervaded our culture, you find it everywhere. And Led Zeppelin's no exception. Some of their most famous songs are coming right from the blues. So as you're composing, you're going to be referencing all of this history. And even if you're not doing it intentionally, it's hard not to draw from everything you've been soaking in your whole life. Is it possible that a creative person simply heard something and liked how it sounded and didn't really consciously connect it to someone else's work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're soaking things in constantly. Uh, if you think you've been hearing music your entire life, you go to write a song. And how do you know when a melody sounds good? Well, I'll tell you, as an artist myself, I hear stuff and I'm not 100 percent where it's coming from. But I bet if I dug around, there's little nuances that are coming from somewhere. They have to have been informed by something. So it's very, very easy to tap into something you're not even consciously aware of. Let's get into a little bit on copyright law. As far as music is concerned, what's protected by copyright law and what is not? 
without belaboring it too much, since there's a lot of uh, nitpicky details, the big stuff, melodies and uh, melodies and lyrics are protected. Chord progressions as a norm are not. So if it's, if it's simply the chord progression, you can have a completely original melody over a chord progression we've heard before, and copyright law theoretically doesn't protect you. Put this suit into context, the current Led Zeppelin suit, when it compared to well, what happened with uh, with Blurred Lines and Robin Thicke, and even a couple others that came to mind for me, uh, George Harrison with My Sweet Lord, and then I think there was a John Fogarty one as well, if I'm right? Yeah, the John Fogarty one's really unusual because I believe that one was the one where he was sued for sounding like himself. But uh, <laughs> outside of that, in the cases of these different songs, it gets it gets difficult because it tends to be more of a timeline argument. This song happened before that song. Um, the Robin Thicke one is particularly interesting because most musicians are really feeling very scared about the result of that lawsuit simply because the Robin Thicke song doesn't have much in common with the Marvin Gaye song other than just a general sense of feel and atmosphere. There's a lot of belief that Robin Thicke's uh, kind of abrasive way of handling himself in the courtroom may have gotten him in more trouble than the song itself. But it sure sets a rough precedent because how do you plan for feel and vibe? That's a quote from the the actual testimony. And that's, they say, what he got in trouble trouble with. (laughs) How dangerous is a precedent like that? And I guess I wonder... um... Does precedent, and just maybe a cynical question, or does precedent apply when a song becomes extremely popular? Let's say a song is just, you know, it's a good song, but but most most people don't hear it. I mean, I presume that happens at, at all sorts of levels, but when something explodes on the Billboard charts, then it becomes, we need to get attention on this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the simple fact that it became popular you know, makes you a target for all sorts of reasons. It could be perfectly innocent. They could be listening to the song and saying, um, oh, that sounds just like mine, but they wouldn't have heard it unless it made it to the mainstream. I mean, for instance, I, I play a lot of jazz music, but since jazz music is not one of the big sellers these days, I could have a song that sounds very similar to something I've never heard, and no one else is aware of it. But if it somehow became popular, you know, I open myself up to accusations because of the simplicity of our modern pop music structure and the limited number of chords and the simplicity of the melody, it becomes even easier to duplicate some element of some song you may have never even heard. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Adam Roberts about music, in part the Led Zeppelin lawsuit that claims that maybe Led Zeppelin borrowed from a song by the band Spirit for Stairway to Heaven in 1971. Adam, one of the things that it comes to mind for me has to do with, I guess I think of something like Pandora or whatnot, that is almost tied to this idea that genre or a certain kind of song uh, is something that may appeal to the listener. At the same time, is that sort of, uh, when I'm talking about algorithms per se, but is that sort of giving us a clue as to the idea that a lot of songs sound alike, even though I know that's not exactly what the algorithm is based on? I see where you're going with that. Um, the idea that these songs have some similar element, I, you know, for Pandora, you might throw in a mood or you might throw in a, I like this song and I want to hear other songs like it. And Pandora would tell you that it's touching into topics in the lyrics or it's in a certain key or it's at a certain speed. So this overlap definitely leads to a lot of similarities. If I wanted a song in A minor, for instance, to make it relevant to this lawsuit, and I wanted it slower, and I wanted it on acoustic guitar, I'm likely going to get these songs because they have all those elements in it. It struck me as interesting that the estate of the late performer for Spirit is looking at a 1971 song that the claim is it's based on a 1968 song. 
Has this thing been in the works for a while? Or I guess I was surprised by the fact that, that there's no statute of limitations to some extent on this. I looked up uh, songs that used this same sort of thing. And I went back a little and uh, one of the, uh, during the testimony, someone referenced Chim Chim Cheree from Mary Poppins. I dug further. Rogers and Hart has the very famous song, My Funny Valentine, which while in a different key has a very similar chord progression. Uh, How Insensitive from Antonio Carlos Jobim is very similar. Heck, you can go all the way back to uh, Bach. Bach has a song called Bure uh, in E minor, which has a very similar chord progression. So, you know, this is one of those things you can just stumble on and it sounds perfectly reasonable. Not to mention on a guitar, as you're playing guitar, the patterns that this song took advantage of are very basic. So it's the kind of thing you might just stumble on practicing. if we look at the patterns, too, of over the years, over the last 40 years, if we look at the billboard charts for a particular style of music, I wonder if listeners tend to end up sort of choosing the same sorts of songs subconsciously, the ones that they really like. I find uh, in my interactions with uh, you know, people through the rock history class I teach and just out in the general public that when we say we like a melody or we like a song, there's a certain element of nostalgia to it. We, we tend to like things that they have just enough innovation to sound fresh, but they sound close enough to the things we've liked in the past that they still have that ring of familiarity. People don't tend to take radical leaps out of their styles. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, I like country, but I don't particularly like rock music or vice versa. That's basically begging to those norms that we're used to and saying that these traditions make sense to me and I like things that fall into that, but I have a hard time with these other elements. So yeah, it's very common for people to like a lot of familiar with just enough novel to keep us interested. Musician Adam Roberts, he's also a Glendale Community College instructor who teaches a course in rock history. We've been talking about the lawsuit over Led Zeppelin's song, Stairway to Heaven. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Electric car maker Tesla, the brainchild of entrepreneur Elon Musk, wants to buy solar panel maker SolarCity for up to $2.8 billion. Musk is already SolarCity's chairman. With me to talk more about the bid and what it could mean is Ryan Randazzo, who covers energy and utilities for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. Ryan, good morning. What's the current condition, as you describe it, of SolarCity, and what kind of presence does the company still have in Arizona? Well, it's the largest rooftop uh, solar installation company in Arizona and in the nation. And despite uh, withdrawing from Salt River Projects territory because of the rates they impose on solar customers, uh, the company still does quite a bit of business in Arizona um, for APS customers and uh, other utility customers. So any thoughts at this point? I know we're early in, in the stage here, but that this transaction could impact Arizona, could impact the market? Well, it's it's going to bring more attention to uh, solar, no doubt, because Tesla is such a marquee brand, and it's just so popular with people. Um, I think the concern, though, is that uh, this deal could could harm Tesla. Um, 
you have a really popular company where people are lining up um, to buy hundred thousand dollar cars. They offered a thirty-five thousand dollar model, and you know, almost half a million people put money down, even though they won't get the cars until twenty seventeen. It's just a wildly popular brand, and and now you're mixing it with a solar company whose um, future prospects are questionable um, because it's highly dependent on net metering and, and utility rates that Arizona and other states are reevaluating. Now, so many businesses, it seems, over the course of the centuries, have been driven by the uh, personality, the energy, the ideas of one person in particular. Is there a, a, a situation where maybe people are doubting Elon Musk because maybe we all just can't understand what a genius he is? Well, he he, he has fans um, on par with Apple and, and Steve Jobs. I mean, the people that invest in, in him and his companies um, certainly have a lot of faith in in what he does. And that appears to be this deal appears to be him trying to lend some uh, value to Solar City by, by putting his name on it. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to remain to be seen whether or not he can he can help that, that solar company and whether or not it drags down his own uh, successful car company. Well, Ryan, review for us then. We're talking about uh, APS and, and their rates, and you mentioned net metering already. In the big picture, um, what are the possibilities, uh, you know, from, from soup to nuts as far as how this could go and how decisions on, on rates and net metering, et cetera, could affect the greater industry in, in Arizona and the Southwest? Well, um, the, the state's biggest utility, APS, has asked to uh, revise the net metering policy. That's where customers who have solar panels get full retail credit for their excess energy. So. Right now, it's sunny outside. People with solar on their roof are generating electricity probably more than they're using because, like you and I, they're at work and, and their home isn't drawing uh, uh, energy on their appliances. So they're sending power to the grid and they're getting credits for it. And when they get home and the sun is down and they're not making electricity, they get to use that credit to offset their bill. Salt River Project reversed that policy. The entire state of Nevada reversed that policy. Our state's biggest utility now, APS, is looking to do that. And, and so frankly, our utilities across the country. We're sort of on the forefront because we have more solar than most other places outside of California and Hawaii. Um, but those policies are very likely to change across the country. And um, how that affects uh, Solar City's model in particular, uh, it's quite a threat. Um, I don't think anyone doubts that solar is going to thrive and, and be the future uh, of our energy supply in this country. Whether or not it's um, leases you know, people who lease solar panels on their roof and the financial model that Solar City has set up, that, uh, that is definitely threatened by, by states like Arizona revising that net metering policy. I know it's hard to look in the crystal ball on this, but based on the fact that, that many people are highly invested in this idea of alternative energy really being a dominant part of the industry for years to come, maybe it, maybe it started already, but at some point in the near future, are you expecting to see true winners and losers when it comes to this, when it comes to the net metering fight, or can there be compromise? Is there any reason to be optimistic about that? I see those two sides. I mean, uh, as far as a compromise between the rooftop solar leasing industry and the utilities, they are so far apart, and they've been so far apart for three years, and they haven't really come any closer together. I, I am losing faith that they're going to reach a satisfactory compromise that preserves um, that business model. I think there's no doubt that we're going to see more and more solar in our energy supply, but those two sides are 
miles apart. I recently wrote about um, battery backup storage and how some solar companies are moving to introduce batteries because that meshes with the utilities' needs a little bit better. And Solar City just uh, didn't want to have that discussion, even though they have uh, batteries from Tesla, and that's the, the point of this merger, um, proposed merger here. Uh, they're just a long ways apart from, from reaching a compromise. Ron, one final question unrelated to Tesla. Um, recently, you wrote a story about the extreme heat we've had in the Valley, and utilities annually reassure us here that there'll be plenty of energy available, et cetera, but does a run of days with highs over 112, approaching 120, does that stretch the limits? Well, there's plenty of, there's plenty of supply. Uh, supply is not the problem. There's actually more than they need with the, the amount of power plants that were built leading up to the recession um, because that wasn't forecasted. So there's, there's enough power out there. What, is, uh, what gives us a risk of blackouts is whether or not that electricity gets to your home because the, the uh, infrastructure fails. Um, so you have transformers that fail or power lines that fail or other pieces of equipment. So there's plenty of uh, supply from the power plants around Arizona and even outside the state that send us electricity. And we've got the country's biggest nuclear plant just outside of Phoenix. Um, plenty of electricity there. It's just whether or not the equipment can withstand the heat um, because it stresses that. So um, this deal with uh, Tesla and Solar City, obviously having more power supply in, in the city on people's roofs helps stabilize the grid, and, and so would uh, having batteries, as uh, Tesla proposes for people with solar. Ryan Rendazzo covers energy and utilities for the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. You can follow him on Twitter at Utility Reporter. Ryan, thank you. Thanks. Have a good day. Still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk about the potential for the Phoenix Suns in the NBA draft tomorrow, and we'll catch up with novelist Jim Salas. Stay tuned. KJZZ is supported by Montessori Day Schools, a top 10 graded charter district with private preschools and charter K-8 through in Phoenix and Chandler. Details at MontessoriDaySchools.org. Good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. Well, plenty of sunshine again today for the Valley. We're under an excessive heat warning until Thursday night. We're looking for a high today of 112 degrees. Not much change for the next several days as well. 111 tomorrow and down to 110 for your Friday. We've got NPRs here and now coming up at noon. Rio de Janeiro is facing pressure to increase security ahead of the upcoming Olympic Games after several athletes were robbed at gunpoint. And two members of the British Parliament will debate tomorrow's vote on whether their country should leave the European Union. Here and now from Boston starts at 12. Mostly sunny right now in Phoenix and it's 101 degrees at 1144. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Tomorrow night is the NBA draft, and the Phoenix Suns have three first-round draft picks. That sounds like a way to improve the team quickly, a team that has made a habit of missing the playoffs. But with that lack of recent success, management may be impatient, could trade some of those picks for more experienced players. Joining me with a brief preview of the Suns' options is Dave King. He's managing editor of the Bright Side of the Sun blog. Dave, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? Doing well. So Suns have three first-round picks. Now, what are the chances, if they were to keep all those picks, that the players could help turn the team around quickly? Because one example is their first-round pick last year, Devin Booker, turned out to be a very good player, but didn't really. there were so many other factors with the team, it didn't help them improve. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Eric Bledsoe just needs to stay healthy, but I, I think as long as he's healthy, he is a good player for a good team. Uh, but he can't carry a team all by himself, as he showed early last year before he got hurt. Uh, the Suns really 
just need to decide if they're going to invest heavily in their in their playoff worthiness around Bledsoe and maybe Tyson Chandler, you eke one more good year out of him before he really, really fades. Uh, then, yeah, you, you trade your three first-round picks if you can for a veteran, a good veteran. Like maybe maybe Atlanta wants to trade Paul Millsap now that they traded Jeff Teague. Who knows? Uh, they, they could potentially lose Al Horford this summer too. So that kind of thing the Suns might at least, well, will definitely at least explore. Uh, but failing um, – acquiring a really good player with their draft picks, they'll probably just decide to go young. How much of this is dependent on owner Robert Sarver, who has faced a lot of criticism over the years for not allowing there to be a plan? Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not there. I'm not in the offices. I don't know what's going on. But there is the feeling that, is there this idea that he may be either frustrated by the lack of, of playoff money or the lack of success of getting the playoffs, where he might just say, you know, guys, I don't want you to do something do something out of the ordinary too crazy, but we need to get some experienced players. We need to turn this around as quickly as possible. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think everybody uh, speculates the same thing. None of us are in the offices, but we're pretty certain that Robert probably 80%, 90% of the time is, hey, have your own plan, Ryan, you know, Ryan McDonough, the GM. Uh, and then the other 10% of the time he's like, as long as it doesn't take too long. And it's already been three years uh, with Ryan McDonough, and they haven't reached the playoffs yet. They knocked on the door once uh, and kind of a second time, but mostly just the one time out of three years. Um, and, but he gave Ryan McDonough the worst team in the league, and now they're back to being the worst team in the league because they tried too quickly to build too quickly and everything fell apart. So I, I suspect you're probably right that Robert Sarver is pushing for acquiring veterans. And I think the, the more correct plan is to be okay losing for a couple more years and get the right guys in there you can build around and keep on the team for 10 years. The last renaissance the Suns had was turned around. They had young, talented players at that time, Sean Mary and Amari Stoudemire, of course, well-known mm-hmm. here. But it was really that signing of Steve Nash that made everything click at that point. I imagine there's not another guy like that on the free agent market that would come to Phoenix? Well, the Suns don't have that young infrastructure yet. So when you look back at that 014. They had not only uh, Sean Marion and, and Amari Stoudemire. Uh, Sean Marion was already a 2010 young player and uh, 20 points and 10 rebounds, and Amari Stoudemire was approaching that. Uh, and they also had Joe Johnson, who was 21 at the time. They had Leandro Barbosa, who was 21 at the time. They had a really, really young team. And signing Steve Nash just allowed that one guy to galvanize the rest of them. But the talent was already there on that, on that young Suns team. This Suns team doesn't have quite the same top-end talent. Uh, they've got a lot of uh, kind of talented players, but they don't have the top-end talent that can grow into uh, that role. Now, if you take somebody in the top five this year that has a Stoudemire or Marion-type ceiling and you actually help them reach it and you build that around Devin Booker, who was drafted last year, maybe next year or the year after, the Suns could sign the one guy who galvanizes them into a 60-win team. But this summer, they're just not there. Dave, one other thing for you, and I think this is especially for those who are not deeply connected NBA fans, with the Suns having the three first-round picks, there's a lot of speculation that that third pick is going to be part of this draft and stash strategy. I wonder if you could just briefly explain to people what that is. Sure, uh, definitely. There is a, there is a, Obviously, it's really hard to have three rookies on a 12-man or 12 to 13 or 14-man roster and actually give them enough time to uh, develop their game. Otherwise, all they're doing is playing in practices, and they might be playing in, in some games in the developmental league 
that is now going to be in Prescott Valley this coming year. Uh, but that really doesn't grow their game. What they need is a real solid role uh, somewhere else. Excuse me, somewhere else. And so what you do is you draft a European guy at that late first round and early second round pick, and let him stay overseas and keep um, having that strong role like Bogdan Bogdanovich that they drafted two years ago. It has won the Rising Star uh, Award in, in EuroLeague two years in a row and uh, may in the next, uh, either this coming year or the next year, come to the Sun as a ready-made, ready-to-play NBA player rather than that, that green player that won't get any playing time that he might have been two years ago. Gotcha. Dave King is managing editor of the Bright Side of the Sun blog. We've been talking about the NBA draft coming up tomorrow and whether the Suns will keep their picks or completely overturn the team. Dave, thanks for the insights. All right, thank you. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. The mystery novel comes in many forms, some especially tied to a formula with a clear protagonist. Some give you the chance to solve them along with a detective or police officer. Others bring a conclusion from out of the blue. At their core, many of James Salas's novels focus on crime, and they are suspenseful, but they are anything but formulaic. In his latest, Will Not, which was published this week, Salas introduces Dr. Lamar Hale and other characters in the small town of Will Not, where the remains of several people have been found. James Salas joins me now to talk about Will Not, which he'll be signing on Friday night at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale. Jim, Dr. Lamar Hale is almost a matter-of-fact protagonist, a regular guy, very authentic. So what are the challenges of creating such a relatable character? I get tired of reading novels that are about heroes. And I suppose he is a hero in a way, but I really wanted to write about ordinary people. And as you know, Steve, I, I improvise. I sort of find my way into the book. And as I sort of fumbled in for the first 40 pages or so, I, um, I, I kind of realized that what the book was really about was how we go on with our little tiny lives. And we worry about, you know, if the iced tea is made and if the ants have gotten off the patio and if we picked up our dry cleaning and is the washer still leaking. And, but while we're doing this, all of these absolutely horrible things are going on around us over which we have no control. Mm-hmm. And I realized that what I was doing was trying to balance these two things and show these ordinary lives that just went on. And there's a, there's a line in the book where uh, Lamar Hale says, going on is what it's all about. And I've always felt that one of the worst things, maybe the source of all our problems, is a lack of empathy, uh, a, a lack of being able to put ourselves in the other person's head. And the whole thing with Lamar Hale is because he was in a coma for years and years, he experienced other people's lives. And that's what he brought back with him. And that's why he's a doctor. And that's why he's a good person. But he's living a fairly ordinary life. What started the novel was him saying that I was a great disappointment to my father. His father was a pulp novelist and was very upset when Lamar said he wanted to be a doctor, which is the reversal of the old thing. <laughs> and then the, the whole thing just kind of developed from there. And, you know, my improvisation is finding the story. I had written the first chapter or two several times, and I had a man and woman partner. It wasn't working. I couldn't figure out why. And then suddenly I realized his partner is not a woman. And the minute I realized his partner was Richard, the whole thing just fell into place. I will tell you, that really stood out to me in reading it, how that just sort of comes about in, in the normal course of the novel that you find out that, I think there was some line about how 
they were sleeping together or there's somebody they just they got out of bed together or something like that. It, it was interesting to not have this shining beacon on this part of the story. So why do you think it worked better once you determined that, that they were in the same sex relationship? It's really hard to say, Steve. It just felt right when I realized that. And, you know, the writing is always a revelation. I want page to page to be surprised because if I'm surprised, the reader will be surprised. I was surprised. Coming back to what you said about empathy, does that impact you as a writer when you're writing about characters that are empathetic? Are you the writer or are you feeling like there's something deeper in the relationship between you and what's going on the page? So when you're writing about empathetic people, are you feeling an extra dose of empathy yourself as you're doing it? I am the character as I'm writing the character. Uh, you know, with the Lou Griffin books, everyone said I was just writing about myself. Well, I wasn't, but I was definitely Lou for those six books. And I think I became Lamar Hale with the chapter about him being a disappointment to his father, which was originally going to be the first chapter. And, you know, so when I'm writing about Lamar, I am Lamar. When I'm writing about Richard, I am Richard. I, I'm really, it's like method acting. I'm really that person. Mm -hmm. And I sort of do my best to see the world through the eyes of that character. And I think that's the kind of empathy that I'm suggesting with Lamar Hale's background. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with novelist James Salas. His latest book is called Will Not, which he'll be signing on Friday night at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale. You might have to ask about the name of the town being Will Not. It seems to just be have so many <laughs> undercurrents to it. So what's the meaning of that? You know, it was a working title, and I got so used to it, I kept it. Early on, I had a paragraph or so about a, a story called Bartleby the Scrivener, in which a person keeps saying, I would prefer not to. And Will Not, the town, for me, was it began uh, as a sort of utopian community, so-called, mm. uh, of people who wanted to be out of the mainstream. They were very, very definite about it. So that whole idea of I will not, a very forceful say, uh, way of saying I won't, just began to seem really, really right. And I kept it, though I did cut the, the reference to Bartleby the Scrivener. Well, so how important is setting in this book as opposed to some of the other books you've written? I think it's always setting. It's always important. You know how visual I am as a, as a writer. And the Lou Griffin books began because I felt that no one had really caught the New Orleans that I know. Uh, when I moved here to, to, to Phoenix, to this part of Arizona, to the valley, I wouldn't write about it for quite some time. And I finally did in The Killer is Dying and in Driven, the sequel to Drive. And I just wanted to write about this odd little town, which was really kind of a little America. You know, it's this, it's this colony that sort of broke off and said, we're not going to be like the rest of the world. And of course, they became like the rest of the world in many ways, but in other ways they didn't. Mm -hmm. And through the years, people grew up there and lived there, but other people came attracted for some strange reason, as did Lamar and Richard. And as you progress through the, through the novel, you begin to realize that the town was founded as a utopian community of great ideals, but it was actually founded on, on killing people. And that's kind of a... a an easy metaphor for where we are right now. Having been discovered by more and more readers, the, the longer you've been writing, has that affected how you approach things? Has it given you more creative freedom or are you the same Jim Salas as a, as a writer, you know, granted with 
getting better in certain ways at your craft, but do you approach writing the same way you did? Or is there something now that, well, all right, now that I've shown them this, I feel like I'm, I'm, I have more freedom to do this one. That's an excellent question. I think there are two answers to that. I think I'm the same James Ellis. I think I'm still writing the same sorts of things. I'm still dealing with the same kind of ideas and the same kinds of people. However, if I had not been, I think, uncovered, it might be better than discovered, if I had not been found or if these people had not found their way to me via the Lou Griffin books, especially through Drive, I probably wouldn't be able to publish the sorts of things I'm writing now. Mm-hmm. So there's a big thing there. I'm, I've been given a lot more freedom by publishers to do what I would probably be doing anyway. You have some scenes in your books that are, you know, can be pretty violent and, and pretty rough. And yet at the same time, um, you have these, you, you write them in a way that almost suggests some sort of beauty to them as well. There are, are pages and pages of fascinating dialogue, interesting scenes, and then you might sort of come at us a little bit with a sledgehammer at times. Is that something that, that works for you? Is that something, again, that comes to you page by page? Well, I think that's, you know, that goes with what I was saying before about these terrible engines that, that are whirling about our head all mm-hmm. the time. And, you know, it's very easy to pretend that that violence isn't there. But anyone who's lived on the streets, anyone who has lived very, very simply with no money, as I did for a long, long time, mm-hmm. is around that violence all the time. And I think we need to be reminded that it's out there. And, but, you know, the thing about violence is it, it, it doesn't take place in slow motion. And it doesn't go on for, you know, three minutes on the screen. Uh, my friend George Policano said that what happens is, is, is someone shoots and there's a lot of blood and then it's over. And that's kind of the approach. Mm-hmm. That we, we see these things, these things, and we can't understand them as we can understand most of the violence and, and will not, but we, we, we take it in and then we go back to our lives. And I, I kind of want that. One of the, the, uh, of all the reviews that have come in early on will not, um, one of my favorite lines, which isn't as catchy as some of the other lines, was, this feels more like real life than a book. And I thought, what a wonderful, wonderful thing for a reviewer to say, because that's exactly what I'm trying. <clears throat> really trying to get those rhythms and the pacing of, of, of life and how we're just overwhelmed by this information all the time, but we still have to go to work. We still have to try to save those lives, as Lamar and Hale's doing. We still have to take care of our partners. We still have to become a part of the community. And, you know, I think that's, that's, that's largely what I'm writing about here and what, what I write about quite a bit. Novelist James Salas, his latest book is called Will Not, which he'll be signing on Friday night at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale. He's also well known for the novel Drive, which was made into a movie. Also has a book of poetry called Night's Pardons. James, thanks for coming in. Good Thank you, Steve. Always a great pleasure. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with Jim Rounds on the economy or Ryan Randazzo on Tesla and Solar City, or novelist James Salas or even one of our previous programs, then please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone and podcast this program. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. In a moment, we'll join NPR's Here and Now from Boston. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great afternoon. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Honor Health. 
Still locally owned and not-for-profit, making healthy personal by honoring your individual needs, goals, and right to feel empowered about your health. Learn more at honorhealth.com. Thank you.